identifying himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel and the anointed of the Lord, David sets forth God's plan for righteous governance. This is the 52nd sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel, a roll reading coming from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 4. By inspiration of God, these are the last words of King David. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Paul, to the church at Rome, Romans in chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, the same spirit that moved the prophet to write. So does Paul write. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, Thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, he must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands Again, for us this morning, as the truth, the world at large, as it is revealed to us in Holy Scripture. Now, at the end of his life, David reflects upon the principles of governance and how governance affects the realm of men and nations. In fact, as we shall see, David will make a stark distinction between good governance and misguided governance that usually results in tyranny and the oppression of the masses. Remember what Paul said, Governance is to promote good and to dissuade and to execute evil. This topic of governance was one of the most important, the utmost important topic to men of history from the beginning of time, even as early as when Adam fell from grace. As a result of man's inhumanity toward his fellow man, tyranny, oppression, and slavery became a feature of humanity's concern. Throughout the pagan ancient world, including the period of ancient Israel, the issue of governance was prominent. And this is due to the fact that when government is structured according to biblical lines, along biblical lines, according to biblical principles, individual liberty and economic prosperity prevails. On the other hand, whenever men seek power and dominance over other men through the exercising of tyrannical governing structures, Slavery, misery, poverty, and death results. 
And this is why we see throughout history the struggles of the righteous. Those, those righteous, liberty-loving men and women fighting and sometimes even dying to secure liberty under a righteous government. The Reverend Kevin Swanson observes this. He says, Though the word freedom is hardly used in our day, symbols of bondage are increasingly popular with the youth. Body piercing, certain clothing styles, jewelry, and other symbols are popular with the youth. Their attempt is to celebrate the equipment of bondage. Notice the shift from liberty to bondage. Now, David understood the importance of right government and the gravity of the situation when biblical government is replaced with man's tyrannical passions to control others by the use of legislation, coercion, and if that fails, then by force and violence. Now, 36 years prior to the fight for America's independence, Reverend Samuel West, Reverend, a preacher, preached a sermon containing this statement. Looking forward to what was in the future for America, 36 years before the fight for American independence, he said this, as the ministers of that day were leading the charge for liberty and independence under God. Notice what he said. I shall consider the nature and design of civil government and show that the same principles which oblige us to submit to government do equally oblige us to resist tyranny. Or that tyranny and magistracy are so opposed to each other that where the one begins, the other ends. In order to clarify what godly government looks like, David chooses to end his life by declaring what godly government should look like what real government, what man's government should look like. But first, he impresses upon his hearers the authority of his words by declaring that everything that he is about to say is actually from God himself. Notice verse 2. The Spirit of Yahweh spake by me. It is God's intervention into my speech that I'm going to declare what's next. And his word was in my tongue. David makes sure that There's no argument here that those that are hearing his statements understand that these statements are divinely inspired by God. These words are the result of direct and immediate inspiration. But note how in verse 3, David makes an interesting shift in his explanation. Instead of repeating the words he is about to declare, not only are they by direct inspiration, He adds that they're also, not only by direct inspiration, but they're directed at David particularly. Notice, verse 3, The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. Not only did he speak by David, but he is speaking to David. Observe how David identifies the Lord as the rock of Israel. Notice, the God of Israel, the rock of Israel. So he he makes an addition. He says, this God of Israel is the rock of Israel. And this is significant. Firstly, the title given to God as the rock implies something very important. It implies a foundation that is immovable. A foundation that cannot be moved. According to Exodus 17, verse 6, it was from the rock in Horeb, where Moses brought forth the water of life for Israel to be refreshed with while they were in the desert. 
We might infer that this rock is where the water of life comes from and from where the human race is to look for instructional living. To understand it another way, we might infer that without the rock as the principle of governance, whether it is the governance of an individual, a family, a church, or a nation, there can be no vibrant life. So let's be perfectly clear. Whenever God is absent from any governmental structure, whether it's the individual governance, family, church, state, there can be no blessing. There can be no prosperity. This is especially true as it concerns national governance. In other words, whenever there is a lack of biblical structure within a nation, and understand, that will affect everyone. It will affect family, church, and the individual. Whenever there is a lack of biblical structure within a nation, which affects everyone, the life of that nation withers away and slowly dies. We are witnessing that today. The more God is removed from government, the more quickly a nation dies. And that death is systemic, comprehensive. Every institution will begin to wither and die. Secondly, as king, David would have to be familiar with the writings of Moses. He was supposed to write out the law. So in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, Moses identifies God as the rock whose ways are just. In other words, everything he does is just, it's righteous, adding to the catalog of God's traits, that is perfection, truth, and righteousness. And we see this in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 32, when Moses says, speaking of Yahweh, he is the rock, his work is perfect, and all of his ways are just, or judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. What a catalog of glory. Calling God the rock was a common identifying title both to Israel and to David. Throughout chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, Moses speaks of God as the rock, showing in particular the uniqueness of God as immovable, as constant, as opposed to all of the foundations of men and nations which are totally unreliable, unstable. He puts it this way in Deuteronomy 32, verse 30, 31, and 37. How should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight except their rock had sold them and the Lord had shut them up? For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. And he shall say, where are their gods? Their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of the drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. Let them rise up. Let the pagan gods rise up. Their rock is not like our rock because we have a rock that is immovable. From David's Psalms, we can clearly see how this aspect of God as the rock and foundation of David's faith had so impressed him. Throughout his Psalms, he kept going back to the rock, the rock. He was in turmoil. He was in oppressed by his enemies. He was confused. He was in a, a tumultuous situation and he kept going back to the rock back to the rock back to the rock notice what he says in the many references to God as David's only hope in Psalm 18 verse 2 the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer 
my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. Let me put it this way. If we want to read this in this way, we would say, in whom I will trust. No matter what, I'm going to trust God. He is my rock in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. In verse 31 and verse 46 of the same psalm, Psalm 18, For who is God save Yahweh? For who is a rock save our God? The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. Notice Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Now notice that word strength. It's actually the word my rock. My rock. Because that was his strength. In Psalm 27, verse 5. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. In Psalm 28, verse 1, Unto thee will I cry, O Yahweh, my rock, be not silent to me, lest if thou be silent to me, I become like them that go down into the pit. In Psalm 31, verse 2, Bow down thine ear to me, deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock, for an house of defense to save me. In Psalm 31, verse 3, for thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Psalm 40, verse 2. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Psalm 62, 2, 6, and 7. Notice, the King James Version says, He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. But the word only is actually the word surely. In other words, he is a surety as my rock. He is surely my rock, my defense. And in Psalm 62, 6, he surely is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. He repeats it twice. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. And then finally in Psalm 71, 3. Be thou my strong habitation, whereunto I may continually resort. Thou hast given commandment to save me, for thou art my rock and my fortress. Notice how David is owning God. He's my rock. He may not be their rock, but he is mine, because I will resort to him when I am in trouble. My rock. This identification was not only unique to David and Moses. Solomon Job, Jeremiah, and Isaiah all refer to Yahweh as the rock. But Isaiah adds a very interesting aspect to God as the rock. He calls God not only the rock, but the rock of ages. In other words, the rock of all eternity, the rock of all of history, the stabilizing force of, of all of history. And in Isaiah 26, 4, he says, Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Or, everlasting strength, literally, the rock of ages. He's the rock of ages. In Isaiah 30, verse 29, the King James Version uses the word mighty, but the literal word uses rock. Notice, ye shall have a song as in the night when a holy solemnity is kept and gladness of heart as when one goeth with a pipe to come into the mountain of the Lord, 
to the mighty one of Israel. In other words, to the rock of Israel. Who is mighty, yes, but it's literally the rock. And of course, Jesus uses the idea of God as the rock to impress upon his audience the importance of having God as the immovable foundation of their faith and life in Luke chapter 6, verses 47 and following. You know, a lot of children are taught this, to recite this and to recognize this. We sing songs about this. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built that house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the streams beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth, earthly, worldly, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. He didn't build his house upon the rock. Both Peter and Paul referred to the Lord Jesus as the rock of the Old Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, Romans 9, 33, and 1 Corinthians 10, 4. And this reference was a common identifying trait when referring to God as the foundation of all human existence, but especially as God's people. Now, in David's declaration of 2 Samuel 23, he is precisely pointing to the necessity of having Christ as the foundation, not only in the individual's situation, or the family's situation, or the church's situation, but the foundation of all governance as well. The governance of every institution should be founded upon that rock. Whether it's politics, governance, law, economics, biology, chemistry, no matter where God's universe exists, it should be founded upon the truth of God's word, upon that rock. But what aspect of God does David consider the foundation as it pertains to government? What aspect of God? Well, we know that the reference to rock of ages clearly speaks of the Messiah because it is Christ who is that rock. But the question then is, what of Christ makes him the rock? What of Christ makes him the rock? Now, the simplest way to understand the use of the term rock is to recognize its stability. If you think about someone who's a rock, they're trustworthy, they're stable. No variation in their in their character. They don't change. They don't vacillate. They're trustworthy. But more importantly, they're predictable. You can know what they are about because they're stable. They're not moved about with every wind of doctrine. They're stable. No variations. So when we apply the term rock to governance, we might conclude that the only thing of God that stabilizes the governance of men and nations is the law of God. The law of God is good because it comes from God. It's part of his character. But the law of God is safe because it's stable. It's predictable. We can know if a man steals, that's a guilty thing. There must be restitution. We know that if a man murders premeditatively, it's a death. We know because the law is predictable today. The law is not predictable because it's not founded upon the rock of God's law. So the only stabilizing force of governance is the law of God. It's the law of God that is the stabilizing force for a civilization in order for it to exist and prosper. 
It is the law of God that brings order out of chaos and holds men accountable for their actions. It is the law of God that is used to balance the social structure when things go astray. Once you lose the tether of the law of God, you lose all navigational ability in the world. When David uses the term just as injustice, he's using a legal term. When he uses the term ruling or rule, he's insinuating that there is a rule, a law by which all things are measured. And this is undergirded by a stabilizing law structure. To rule in the fear of God, to rule in the fear of Elohim, is to rule according to the law of God, in covenant with God, in covenant with the God of creation, who gave mankind his law. To rule in the fear of God refers to a deep regard and respect for the God of the universe. It also presupposes that this God is the supreme lawgiver, judge, and king of the universe. And if a man is to be legitimate in his ruling, if he is to be a legitimate magistrate, a legitimate ruler, he must do so according to the prerequisites of the law of God. When he departs from the law of God, he becomes illegitimate. David's prophecy, therefore, has a threefold purpose. Number one, it is a direct inspired principle of governance for men and nations. Number two, it is directed at David as to what a king should or should not be. Number three, more importantly, it is a testimony of Jesus Christ who is the only one that can fulfill David's requirements perfectly. Now we know this to be true from the exact Hebrew wording which actually says, He that ruleth over man is the just one. He that ruleth over man is the just one. In other words, he that ruleth over man The only perfect ruler over man is the just one who is Jesus Christ. He is the perfect ruler among men. Now, of course, this does not negate that these prerequisites are a model to be followed for all governors, civil and ecclesiastic. But no man can fulfill these things perfectly. In principle, this is talking about Jesus. This is why David continues with verse 4, pointing to his rule, Christ's rule as the light of the morning. Notice, and he shall be, this ruler, shall be as the light of the morning. Notice, the light of the world, the light of the morning, the day star. When the sun rises, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by a clear shining after rain. You see, David is alluding to Jesus Christ as the bright and morning star, who is also the light of the world, distinct from all darkness, as the sun of righteousness, who rises with healing in his wings. So you see, David's, Declaration is about Christ as the perfect ruler. Adam Clark observes this. He says, As the Messiah seems to be the whole subject of these last words of David, he is probably the person intended. See, too many times we want to vet our our magistrates according to these passages, and no one, no one, I don't care who they are, can meet up to that requirement. Because it's talking about the Christ. Now, is it something we can use? Yes. But no one will measure to that extent than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me continue with Adam Clark. Dr. Kenneth Scott 
therefore translates, As the light of the morning ariseth, he, Christ, shall be the Son of Righteousness, bringing salvation in his rays, and shining, illuminating the children of men with increasing splendor, as long as the sun and moon endure. The effects of this shining, and as of the rays of his grace, shall be like the shining of the sun upon the young grass after a plentiful shower of rain. End quote. It's talking about Christ. David's next verse affirms our interpretation as he contrasts the law and the rule of Messiah with his own. And notice verse 5. Although my house, in other words, in contrast to God's perfect justice, in contrast to God's perfect governance, my governance was not so with God. I did not fulfill these requirements. David here is confessing that his rule was not as it should have been. Since there were so many inconsistencies, so many sins that plagued his rule, his governance. There will be no Davidic dynasty. There will be no dynasty of man, but only the dynasty of the perfect one, Jesus Christ. And yet God was faithful to his covenant promise to David, and David recognizes this. So he says, yet, notice, although my house be not so with God, yet he was faithful. In other words, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. In other words, I did not have a dynastic kingdom. My governance was not perfected. It was not perfect, but he was faithful to me even though I was not faithful to him. Even though my governance had many inconsistency and variations that were not good, he was faithful to me. So now the question is this. Since only Jesus can fulfill these requirements, does that mean that they are not applicable for the human race when it comes to the governance of men and nations? And the answer is, of course, no. These are very applicable. These stipulations are precisely for the right governance of men and nations so that we could elevate ourselves to approach that perfection. Not that we would ever gain that perfection, but that we would at least have a model for perfection. What God is giving us is the perfect rule for governance so that we might have a right model to judge our own governance thereby. Of course, God takes into account the fallen nature of man. Nevertheless, governance should come as close to this model as possible in spite of the nature of man. Calvin believed this very thing, that the fallen nature of man should be taken into account when choosing leaders, but never to be used as an excuse for those leaders to violate the commandments of God or become tyrannical in their rule. Calvin was... He was real in in what he was thinking. Yeah, uh, we have to take into account the the fallen nature of men. You're not going to get a perfect guy. Because there aren't any perfect guys except for the man, Christ Jesus. Citing Exodus 18, Calvin believed that the election of rulers was legitimate and stood in the place of God for the good of the people. In 1536, Calvin set forth these five principles for governance. Number one, depravity is a human variable to be accounted for and accommodated for. Number two, accountability for leaders 
was a necessity. Number three, republicanism was the preferred form of governance. A nation of laws, in other words. Number four, constitutionalism was needed to restrain both the rulers and the ruled. Number five, and that constitutionalism should have been biblically sound. Number five, limited government, beginning with the family, was foundational. So at the root of all of Calvin's ideas was the sovereignty of God and the legitimacy of his law for men and nations. If we were able to label Calvin's ideas for what a government looks like, what governance looks like, we would call it a theonomic theocracy, a lawful governance under the rule of God. According to Scripture, governors are to act as ministers for the good of the people as representations of God. They are to put down the evil and uphold the good and the just. And Paul makes this perfectly clear in his letter to the church at Rome when he lays out the duty of the civil magistrate without giving them any excuse for their propensity to sin. And yet he makes this glaring point that many who quote these passages fail to add. Notice verse 7. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now this caveat in verse 7 of Romans 13 would seem to exclude those who violate these biblical principles. In other words, only those who are worthy of obedience are to be obeyed. Only those who are worthy to be honored should be honored. Only those whom tribute is due should be paid. If these magistrates, whether they are civil or ecclesiastic, if they become overbearing or tyrannical, then there's no longer any obligation to honor them, to give them tribute, to give them reverential fear. They are to be despised. They are to be called out. They are to be chastised. They have to be condemned for their wickedness. But today in our modern woke mentality within the church, oh, you got to be loving everybody. You can't call out a sinner. You can't call out a magistrate. Where does it say that? Is not Christ our quintessential example when he called out the hypocrite, the lawyer, the Pharisee? Now this seems to confirm what the Old Testament historical narrative taught. Resistance to tyrants is a commandment of God. Calvin's successor, Tito Beza, often referred to as the point guard of the Reformation. He wrote in his 1574 work on, quote, the rights of the magistrates, which supported republicanism and the limited submission to governors, his argument was normalizing the idea that resistance to evil governments was a duty of the righteous and was adopted by men like John Knox, Pierre Vire, and John Pinard. This was something that these men were talking about all day long because they were in the throes of tyranny. They understood what tyranny was. They were able to recognize it. And the reason why they were able to recognize it, because they were able to recognize what liberty was. 
This deepened Calvin's theopolitical ideas into a more mature and cohesive philosophy of governance by Theodore Beza. Beza mapped out three conditions that had to be met before armed resistance against an evil tyrannical leader could be carried out. Now, no, he's not saying that armed resistance was impossible or unbiblical. He was saying you had to meet these qualifications first. Number one, the tyranny must be undisguised and notorious. Number two, the recourse to arms must not be carried out before all other nonviolent options are exhausted. Number three, Beza finally warned that every effort should be made to ensure that the resistance does not bring about unintended consequences which may be more destructive than the tyranny itself. We see that in the French Revolution. Now, John Whitty Jr., the director of religion and law at the Emory University, observes, and when I read John Whitty Jr., I, I own, I think I own all of his books. I have never read a man so brilliant in all my life. Perhaps he's a handful of men that I find just absolutely brilliant. He says this, Calvin developed arresting new teachings on authority and liberty duties and rights in church and state that have had an enduring influence on Protestant lands as a result of its adaptability. This rendered early modern Calvinism as one of the driving engines of Western constitutionalism. A number of our bedrock Western understandings of civil and political rights, social and confessional pluralism, federalism and social contract and more owe a great deal to Calvinist theological and political reforms. We are children of the Reformation. And so then the first question that should be addressed is by what standard do we then vet leaders who are called to rule over many nations? Well, God's first requirement for biblical governance is justice. He that ruleth over men must be just. Justice, in other words, must be the principal foundation for the magistrate. There can be no partiality, in other words, when adjudicating a matter. There's no two-tier justice system, one justice system for the wealthy, one justice system for the poor. Moses counsels us in this. He says in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 1 and Deuteronomy 16, he says, Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness thou shalt judge thy neighbor. Ye shall not respect persons in judgment, but ye shall hear the small as well as the great. Ye shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. And the cause that is too hard for you, bring it unto me, and I will hear it. Thou shalt not rest judgment, or pervert judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift, for a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise, and pervert the words of the righteous. Now perhaps reflecting upon his father's indiscretion in judgment, as David sometimes was not very discreet in his judgment, his son Solomon says this in Proverbs 24:23. These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to have respect of persons 
in judgment. And if you remember, David very much was respecting the persons of his war chief. This requirement is given because God is no respecter of persons. And the magistrate is to emulate God. Moses then adds this in Deuteronomy 10.17, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, a great God and mighty, a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh rewards. So in other words, be like him. David gives one other additional requirement for a legitimate ruler. He must fear God. This fear is attached to wisdom. For it is the fear of the Lord that begins wisdom. Now, while these are necessary requirements, they are by no means exhaustive. The reason for this, I believe, is because the full catalog of requirements for any ruler was already given in the law of Moses from Exodus 18. That's why Paul doesn't go into it. Nor here that David goes into it. Because they were already laid out. Now consider the many aspects of these passages as they not only reflect the character requirements of rulers, but the representative republicanism that Calvin spoke of. The agreed maxim of godly governance already stipulated the fundamental components of government. Number one, and this is essential, God is sovereign. Everyone is going to stand before God at one point or another because he is the sovereign judge of the universe. Second, a covenantal relationship between God and his creatures, especially magistrates, exists. There is a responsibility by both parties. God promises to do this. We must promise to do that. Number three, a standardized, immovable, without variation, system of divine, non-negotiable laws, statutes and ordinances, whereby a ruler would rule, are to be maintained. Whenever Congress says, we're writing a new law, run for the hills! There are only 613 laws, and many of them are ceremonial in the whole of Scripture. You must have a predictable standard of divine power, non-negotiable, whereby a ruler would rule. Otherwise, men are in peril. The idea of republicanism simply means that a nation was to be structured according to a law system and its rulers were to be elected by the people as their representatives to uphold that law. Now just for a moment... Consider Jethro's counsel to Moses. And that's why Paul didn't elaborate and David didn't have to elaborate. He gave you a snippet. But notice Jethro's counsel to Moses. Chapter 18 of Exodus. Beginning in verse 15. And Moses said unto his father-in-law, because the people come unto me to inquire of God, when they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another, and I do make them know the statutes of God. There it is. I'm not writing new laws. I'm not pulling it out of the sky, I'm just telling them what God's law says. That's my job. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, the thing that thou doest is not good. Not that you're telling them God's law, it's just because there's too many people coming to you. That will surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee. For this thing is too heavy for thee, thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. You need help, in other words. You need people who know what God's law says. 
so that they could tell others how to apply the law of God. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. In other words, you're going to represent God to the people and the people to God for good. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws and shall show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do according to the law of God, in other words. Moreover, verse 21, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men. Notice the phrase, able men, skilled, mature, in other words, men of experience, men of knowledge, men of wisdom, men of grit, men of understanding, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetous, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of ten. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetous, those will be your leaders. And let them judge the people, verse 22, at all seasons. Now that's a very interesting phrase. They would have to know when to apply that law to that season, this law to that time, the other law to this season. They have to know times and seasons. That required wisdom. So if a young mother comes to a judge and asks what they should do, you need to apply the law for her season of life. When an older person, a single person, comes to judge between this thing and that thing, what they should do, you apply the law to that season of life. They had to know the times and the seasons. That required ability. That required maturity. That required this discernment of, of, of the season and the time in which these people lived. And let them judge the people at all seasons. And it shall be that every great matter shall they bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. So no matter what the situation, any season, any time, any circumstance, they were able to deal with it. That took skill. Able men needed to be found. Verse 23, If thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. Notice, when the law is brought forth and applied properly, what's the result? Peace. Not chaos. Not fear. Not confusion. But peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel. I am just so thankful that he was able to find able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. And they judged the people at all seasons. The hard causes they brought unto Moses but every small matter they judged themselves. Able men, men of truth, men who feared God, men who hated covetousness, those were placed in positions of majesty. They were the ones in power because they ruled in behalf of the people for good, representational of God. We will examine each of these character traits next. When we return... To the final chapter of Second Samuel, 
This we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.